uh, last week, James asked you all if you had ever been in a street fight. And we talked about it in our grounder group, and there, were, there, there was someone who was in a street fight. And she told us all about that cool fight. Today, I want to ask you a follow-up question. Have you ever been knocked out in the street fight that you were in? Now, I know the football is not necessarily a street fight, but when I was in high school, during practice, I was a defensive back, and the coach called a play for the running back to run right off tackle. And the play ran. Steve had the ball. He's built like a fire plug, strong as can be. And the lineman got blocked. He ran right through the hole. The linebackers, what did they do? I don't know. They were doing homework or something. They let Steve go right past the linebackers. Then there was only me, the defensive back. And I went down to do a nice form tackle. And Steve was the hammer. And I was the nail. And he knocked the wind out of me, knocked me right on my back, ran over me, and scored a touchdown. Now, I have a sneaky hunch that I got knocked unconscious with that hit. And we all got back into the huddle. The coach decided, run the play again. Same thing happened. The linemen, the linebackers let him go. And I just stood there and never even touched Steve. He just ran right by me. And I would suggest that is probably why I lost my starting position as a defensive back that season. I was knocked silly. I got the wind knocked out of me. I'm pretty sure I couldn't really see straight at the moment. And well, you know, this pandemic to a certain extent has been like that. It's knocked the wind out of a lot of us. So we've had to rethink a lot of things. We've had to rethink the way we do work the way we do school, the way we do travel. We, we've had to rethink the way we do church and friends, rethinking our friendships and politics and just about everything has been turned upside down. We're rethinking life. And I suggested a couple weeks ago that there's three questions that they really percolate in all of our brains most days. But if you happen to be as young as James, well, no, much, much younger than James, these questions drive everything you do all day long. And the three questions are, who am I? That's my identity. What can I do? That's my calling. It's my purpose. And where do I fit? That's my belonging. That's my community. And the reality is, is that it's hard to get answers to those questions because there's a lot of people that want to feed into us. The, the cultural kind of milieu that you and I live in today, there's just so many answers that demand performance and precision. It can be difficult, particularly if you're young, to answer, well, who am I really? And, and what do I have to offer this world? Why am I here? And who likes me? Who, where, where do I fit? Who are my friends? Who am I connected to? And the reality is, is that Jesus, if you read his life throughout the Gospels, Jesus was answering the same questions. Just like you and I have to answer those questions, Jesus also, in his mind, was saying, well, wait, what is my identity? What, what's my mission? And, and who are my people? 
Last week, James showed us that when Jesus was asking these questions, he went to the scriptures. It was just this automatic impulse built over time out of practice. Jesus, his, his, his knee-jerk reaction when he was in the midst of having to give an answer to those questions, he went to the scriptures. They informed his thinking and his mind. But if you read the story of Jesus, you will discover that all along the way in Jesus' journey, there was opposition to him getting answers to those questions. He was confronted by people consistently. You know, a lot of times we think of Jesus as like this, this gentle teacher of Instagram-worthy quotes or aphorisms, you know? Like, he was just so sweet and kind and gentle. But if you really watch him, and read about his journey, he had opposition at every turn along the way. He also had a lot of accusations, as James showed us last week. He was prompted by the Holy Spirit to go out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan, who was accusing him, questioning the developing answers that he was beginning to cultivate within his mind about his identity and his purpose and his belonging. But the accusation didn't just come from Jesus. It, it, it came from religious people. It came primarily from religious people, which is so ironic. And their goal, Satan and the religious people's goal was to confuse Jesus' identity and to derail his purpose. And my friends, I wanna say today that same design is coming our way too. The evil one wants to confuse our identity and he wants to derail your purpose. Peter Scazzaro wrote a fantastic book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Such a good book. And in this book, basically his premise is you cannot be spiritually mature if you remain emotionally immature. And in here, he lists some examples of the lies the evil one wants to put inside our brain. And it plagues us. It keeps us from getting good answers to the questions. Let me give you some of them. And my friends, when I list these out, you may resonate with some, not all, but you may go, whoa, that, that's, that's a lie that has come from my upbringing. Even my, my family of origin or some of the religious people around me. Here are some lies that you may say to yourself, but it really is the evil one speaking into your mind. I'm a mistake. I am a burden. I am stupid. I am worthless. I am a disappointment. I'm not allowed to make mistakes. I must be approved by certain people to feel okay. I don't measure up. I don't have the right to experience joy and pleasure. I don't have the right to assert myself and say what I think and feel. I don't have a right to feel. I'm valued based on my intelligence, my wealth, and what I do, not for who I am. I know that some of those same feelings percolated around Jesus and the evil one tried to penetrate his thinking with some of those lies and some of those ideas. 
And the last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus from his baptism, the start of his ministry. He was then pushed out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the evil one. And then he went into Nazareth, where he claimed to be the Messiah. And there was opposition, accusation, and lies all along the way, attempting to derail Jesus from whom God wanted him to be. And you remember that in his baptism, he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and then Jesus heard the voice of his Father speak clearly into his heart. And what did his Father tell him? He said, you are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Have you ever heard the Father say that to you? I would suggest that fundamental, central to our understanding who we are and why we're here on this planet is to hear the voice of the Father. You are my child. And I love you. And when I look at you, I'm pleased. I want to do just a little pause. Amanda, come on up. We're not done with the message, but I, I just want to pause. I want to give us an opportunity to be quiet. Well, you're quiet. I'm going to give you an opportunity for me to be quiet. And I want to invite you to, in the quietness with the noise of the waves, for you to listen to the voice of the Father. You are my daughter. You are my son. You who I love. With you, I am pleased. Can you hear the Father say that? In the silence, I actually want you to think of that phrase with some blanks in it. And I want you to see if you can hear the Father, or maybe there's other voices that want to fill in the blanks with other words and they might be lies from the evil one you're my child whom I blank and with you I am blank is it hard to hear the father say that he loves you and that he's pleased with you. And what are some of those voices, some of those lies that we so easily fill the blank with? So we'll be quiet for just a short time for you to just ponder that statement. And then Amanda will lead us in a short chorus and I'll come back. Yeah. 
starting to fade You're patient with me Hearing your love, oh Lord, set me So I let out the sails of my heart Whoa, here I am, here you are I let out the sails of my heart Whoa, here I am, here you are I let out the sails of my heart I want to invite you to do the kind of work you need to do to be able to allow God to speak deeply into your heart. It's the starting place to let God really, really love you for who you are right now. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 8. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture there, whether it's your, your uh, hard copy, it's on your phone, or you can just listen as I work through the passage. John 8, starting in verse 12. I want to enter into some of this struggle that Jesus was with and the opposition that continually dogged him. And have, them see, have us see sort of this, this fundamental way that Jesus responded to those that wanted to derail him. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus, when he spoke again to the people, he said this bold claim, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. It's a bold claim for Jesus to declare to all these people gathered, I am the light of the world because Jesus knew who he was and he knew what he could do. He had centered, settled answers to life's most important questions. And I don't know about you, but I want this light of life. I don't want to walk, walk in darkness. I want to have that light. I want my life to be filled with his light. Now, the context of this passage that we're looking at is the festival of the tabernacles when all sorts of Jews would come into Jerusalem. It was jam-packed with people, and Jesus is in the court of the women at the temple, and everyone's gathered around, and one of the key aspects of the festival of tabernacles is they had these massive lights inside that court of the women. And during the festival, they would light these lights and they were so big that they would light up the entire temple, including all of Jerusalem. And the limestone walls, they just were gorgeous and beautiful. And in that context, Jesus says, I am the light. 
of the world. I'm not just the light of the temple. I'm not just the light of Jerusalem or Israel. I am the light of every single person. So I just want to say, you and I are invited to follow Jesus, his words and his ways. We're invited to follow him into the light. But verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him and they said this, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Here's the opposition. And by the way, note that they're religious people. And they're saying, Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just speaking for yourself. You don't have what it takes. Now, they're referring to an Old Testament law, to an Old Testament practice that was a good rule, it was a good law. I'll give you one example from Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. This is what it says. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This was a good rule to have in place because it protected those who were falsely accused. In this series, we've been looking at the way that Jesus tapped into what the ancient scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, what we often call the Old Testament, how Jesus found his source of mission there in the Old Testament scriptures. And you'll see how this plays out. So essentially, Jesus is in a courtroom right now, if you will. And the Pharisees are challenging him and saying, you, you cannot be your own sole solitary witness. You need two. Now, they're not trying to protect him. They're trying to accuse him. They want to find him guilty. So Jesus answered in verse 14, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. And why is it valid? For I know where I came from and where I'm going. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Jesus is so confident he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. Wouldn't that be nice to have that sort of conviction in your life? Your whole upbringing, your whole origin, all of the tangled family of origin stuff, you've worked that out and you are settled in. You know what? I know God put me on this planet. I know he has a plan for my life. And I know exactly where I'm headed. Wouldn't that be fantastic to have that? Especially if you were 17 and you're in the midst of college choice. Oh, wouldn't that be a good feeling, mom and dad, who are so enmeshed in that decision right now? Jesus did. He really did. So Jesus essentially is turning the table on the witness stand and he's putting them in the witness box. And he says, but you, you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. Verse 15, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, Jesus says. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. 
And then he goes back to this rule again about two witnesses. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. My testimony is valid, but I have a second witness, and he's my Father. He's my Heavenly Father, and he's the one that said to me, you're my, you're my, son, you're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. That conviction was so central to Jesus and his ability to stand against all of the opposition that came his way because he'd heard the voice of the Father and he knew he was not alone. The trial continues, 19. Then they asked him, so where's your father? They're gonna, they're gonna challenge his family of origin. And Jesus answers, you do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Look at verse 19 again. You do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. So the key word I want to land on today in this message is the word know. And in verse 19, he uses that word know three times. You do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. This word, know, can be used in all sorts of different ways. One could be intellectual head knowledge, but that's not the word that's used here. This is a word that is used when you are speaking about intimate relationships. It's a word that's used to talk about these close, intimate, and positive relationships based on personal experience. Up close, personal intimate. So what we're talking about right now, hi, how are you? I know, it's so interesting. I love it. So what we're doing, it's, it's, all, it's all good. Just make sure you watch the water. So um, there you go. By the way, we love kids at the river. Absolutely love them at the river. That's knowing right there. That's an intimate, close, personal relationship. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is getting us to focus on is the intimate relationship between him and his father. We're talking about our intimate relationship with the father through Jesus. The invitation to move beyond head knowledge into a extremely close and positive, life-giving, light-filled, intimate relationship between you and Jesus and his Father. Jay Packer wrote a book a long, long time ago. It was titled Knowing God. 
a classic book on knowing God. And he starts the book with this idea, okay? Let's just say that there was a group of people that were on a long wilderness hike, and they're coming into a town on dusty roads. And there's another couple people that are sitting on the balcony of a hotel, and they're watching this weary, dusty group of travelers, and he notices that, oh wait, Jesus is amongst them. And J.I. Packer contrasts the knowledge of the people on the balcony who are able to make observations about their clothes and their pace and their apparent thirst and fatigue from a distance, a safe distance on the hotel balcony versus the experience of the people that are actually down in the dirt on the dust traveling with their rabbi Jesus. A completely different experience in terms of how one perceives and understands who Jesus is. And then J.I. Packer, through the rest of the book, Knowing God, invites us to get down on the trail with Jesus, where we can talk with him and jostle with him and touch him and ask him questions, as opposed to sitting on the balcony at a safe yet impersonal distance from Jesus. And so... One of the questions that we might ask right now, do you have a sense that you're on the balcony? Or are you down in the dusty road walking with Jesus? And there's a big difference between those two perspectives. And at the river, we just so desire, we so desire to get down in the dirt with Jesus. To make this an extremely personal relationship where we know firsthand because we've been with him, we've talked with him. That's why we use this phrase, the words and the ways of Jesus, being involved in his ways. There's a prayer I pray often. I pray it for you. I know your pastoral team, we pray this for you. It's our heart's desire. It's my heart desire for you even this morning from Ephesians 3. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Knowledge is so important, but there is a love relationship between you and Jesus that is possible that goes way beyond intellectual understanding. And you're invited into that relationship to push past the hotel balcony and get down right next to Jesus. I want you to know that love. I want you to really, really, really know it. Because in the most difficult places in your life, that love will carry you. So how do we do this? 
I'm gonna wrap up with just a few ideas. We'll see how many ideas I can unload on you. Um, how do we develop intimacy with the Father? And there is something inside of me that resists it. I don't know why, but sometimes inside my heart, I, I, I push him away. So I wanna suggest that there's, there's no formulas, okay? There's no formula like, here's the five ways you develop intimacy with God because that doesn't work. We're all unique and individual. So please don't hear anything that I'm saying as, here's the secret because I don't have the secret. But we gotta start by knowing that God wants intimacy with you. I don't know if you know this, but Psalm 139 says that his thoughts about you are as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. His thoughts about you are more than these grains of the sand. God, the Father, is thinking about you. He is intimately aware of all your ways. Trust is at the center of intimacy. You know that if you're married. You cannot have an intimate relationship with your spouse if there is not trust. And for some of us, we have a very hard time trusting God. We have a very hard time trusting the Heavenly Father because we don't trust Him. And I can't solve that, obviously. But that's work we have to do. If we don't trust our Heavenly Father, we can't experience an intimate relationship with Him. I think the scriptures and Jesus is telling us, be cautious of religion. You know, the, the, the people that knew the Bible the most, the people that studied the Bible the most, they totally missed Jesus. That's a caution for all of us. So be cautious of religion. In Psalm 51, David cries out, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Intimacy with the Father starts with acknowledging we're broken people and it's okay. That's why he sent Jesus to say, I love you. Come, experience forgiveness. You can come into my presence through Jesus. So be cautious of sort of an external religion where you feel like you're earning God's favor by doing religious things. Just throw that away. It doesn't work and it doesn't help. I would suggest in the midst of chaos, create rhythms. Rhythms are so important. We just turned our clocks one way or the other. I can't remember, got an extra hour of sleep, right? We, we have the sun that, that, that rises every day. And it reminds us there's a time to quit working and to go to bed and to rest. And every week we're told, take a Sabbath. There's seasons, fall, winter, spring, summer. God has designed it into the rhythm of life that there's times when we work and there's times when we rest. So. Do what you can, even if it's super simple, to find a way to practice Sabbath. Now I know, for those of you that have small children, you're gonna hear this and think, are you kidding me? A one minute Sabbath, one minute is better than no Sabbath. 
at all, where we pause and we say, I am done. Do a Sabbath when you put your head on the pillow and say, my day is done. I will now go to sleep and give the universe back into your control, God. Simple Sabbath. Weekend worship. A family that makes consistent time with the community of God, a sort of almost non-negotiable, and obviously there's, there's times when we're out of town and there's those kind of things, but to be part of this as a consistent basis, raising our family within this context, that we're part of a community, not of our own choosing. We don't get to choose who comes here, but we insert ourselves in the middle of it and say, I will worship God communally with other people. Another rhythm that's so great, even if it's super simple, is once in a while, eat dinner together as a family. I know that sounds like a really foreign concept because our schedules are so chaotic. But find a way to eat dinner as a family and put your phones in another room. Now I know that you've heard that so many times, but I'm just gonna challenge you. How many times do we not do that? How many times do phones interrupt a family gathering? and make that a rhythm, even if it's only one time a week or a month or a year. Something's better than nothing. Now last week, James led us into scripture and I won't go down that road, but scripture is such an important part of our intimacy with the Father, particularly the Psalms. If you've never introduced yourself to the Psalms, take some time just to live in the Psalms and you'll be surprised how David is so real so honest. I would suggest another way to find intimacy is to cut down on noise. Our lives are inundated with so much noise. So I cycle a lot. And one of the beautiful things about cycling is there were times when I wanted to put earbuds in and then I realized, number one, if you have two earbuds in, you're stupid because you're going to get run over by a car. Number two, it's illegal. But for me, what happened was when I put the earbuds away and I just rode my bike and let it be quiet, it's amazing what could happen in my mind and my heart and how so many problems were beginning to be worked out, especially between me and God in silence. I get into my car and I immediately want to turn on my next podcast. And sometimes I realize, Bill, you have been consuming so much content. And I just turn it off. And it's so hard for me to ride in my car with no noise. But it's really a gift. So find a way when you can to cut down on noise. I would suggest worship music. And, and, and really, I mean, in this context with Amanda leading us and Troy and others, it, it's such a gift. And I know sometimes people say, well, I, hey, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that song. That song's not familiar. I want to invite you to take advantage of one thing that Amanda does and Paige does is on the blurb that you get every week, there's always a link that says, here are the worship songs for Sunday morning. And you can listen to every single one of them. And so I do that before Sunday, not every Sunday, but before Sunday, I go in there and I listen 
to those songs. And when I come on Sunday morning, I know the songs. I'm more familiar with the lyrics. So my experience of worship is that much richer. But for me, I often will, I'll take that back. Not that often, but I will occasionally take worship music and I will look at the lyrics of the songs. Not just listen to it as background noise. I will look at the lyrics and if I could go sit on the cliffs of PV and take 15 minutes and listen to worship music in nature, looking over the cove with the lyrics, it's an amazing worship experience with God. Okay, I got a few more. I'm almost done though. I would suggest that we need to learn how to say no and really, really say no. Now, I'm gonna give a little bias, but my friends, youth sports has taken control of our lives and I can't tell you how many parents have told me, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this because my son's practice, blah, 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 blah. And my gut reaction is you said yes to that. It was your choice to have that inserted into your life. Now friends, we are standing on the edge of a rushing river. And as soon as you dip your toe into that rushing river, what happens? Whoosh, you get swept down the river. And in our culture, in our community, it is almost impossible to step into that river and not get swept down the river to where we say, I have no choice. I've lost control of my life. Now, we could talk about solutions. This is not the time or place for that. But we need to be honest with ourselves about what we say yes to. And I would suggest that one of the things we need to say no to more than anything else is the way we use our phones. Our phones are interrupting intimacy with God. And they're amazing tools that we need to be in control of rather than them being in control of us because I guarantee you what's available on our phones and how we now have used phones 24 hours a day, it is choking our intimacy with God. Man alive, now I'm preaching, James. What am I doing here? Okay, I do use my phones and the app on my phone, the Reminders app, to, to, to good use. I have written myself several, well, probably six or seven reminders on my phone, and I give them a date. Two of them I get every single morning. And they're prayers of mine to God saying, basically begging God to help me. <laughs> And those reminders come to me every single morning. Others come different times of the month. And those reminders help me tap in to intimacy with God. I have a friend named Dave who stood with me in my wedding. He texts me every single morning and tells me he's praying for me. And having a friend like that where I get his text in the morning is extremely helpful. James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits. If you're into developing good habits, it's a fantastic book, but he talks about habit stacking. Habit stacking is where you take one habit that you've already got established and you stack another one right after it. So for me, I cycle. I bring my bike into the garage, I put my bike away, and before I leave my garage, I lift some dumbbells and I do a plank. I don't want to do a plank, and I don't want to lift those dumbbells, but I've 
stacked it to cycling so that I do the cycling, which I love, and immediately following the thing I love, I attach something that's harder to do. And now it's a habit, and I know I can't leave my garage without lifting those dumbbells and doing a plank. So I do that in my mornings, and your mornings are probably different, but I make coffee, I go light a candle in my living room, I sit in my chair, and I turn on a meditation app called Soul Space, five minutes. I've have it stacked because I'm addicted to coffee and I'm not gonna skip coffee. But once I do the coffee, I know the candle and the meditation app and the reading of my Bible is next. And it works for me. It's become like a habit. The last thing I'm gonna say is be cautious about intermediaries. It's really easy for us to let other people do our spiritual growth for us, like a pastor or a podcast. It's really easy to sort of live off of somebody else's intimacy with the Father, and Jesus invites you to get off the balcony and to come right down and walk with him. And we're able to do that. We're able to draw near to God because the Heavenly Father has sent Jesus. So, Amanda, why don't you come up, and if you guys could get us ready for communion. I want to remind you that this is not merely about our work and figuring out. It's tapping into who Jesus is and the fact that Jesus on the cross gave us access to the Father so that we can hear him say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And if you struggle with that idea of hearing God's voice, I want to invite you, encourage you to marinate in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let that text become a text that draws you into a relationship with your Father through Jesus. Let's pray and then Amanda's going to lead us. It's amazing that you, the creator of the universe, invite our friendship. Help us as a community to grow deeper in this love relationship, Father. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did on the cross. And we want to trust you even more now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able to, I want to invite you to stand. Standing here in your presence, in a grace so relentless, I am one by perfect love, wrapped within the arms of heaven. In a peace that lasts forever, sinking deep in mercy, see I'm wide awake, drawing closer by grace. All my heart is yours. I breathe you in, lean into your love. 
over us this morning. Just as we hear the ocean waves crashing on the shore, Lord, let that be your love crashing in our souls this morning, washing over any pain or disappointment, Lord. You are close, you are near to us. So we exalt you this morning, Lord. Let's sing this together. Your presence is all I need. Your presence is all I need, it's all I want, all I seek, and without it, without it, there's no meaning. Your presence is the air. Your presence is 
The air I breathe, the song I sing, the love I need, and without it, without it, I'm not living. So I will exalt, so I will exalt you, Lord. I will exalt you, Lord. There is no like you, God. I will exalt. I will exalt you, Lord. I will exalt you, Lord. No other name lives at heart. Sing your presence is all I need. Your presence is all I need, it's all I want, it's all I seek, and without it, without it, there's no meaning. Your presence is the air, your presence is the air I breathe. The song I sing, the love I need, and without it, without it, I'm not living. I will exalt, so I will exalt you, Lord. I will exalt you, Lord. There is no like you, God, I will exalt. So I will exalt you, Lord. I will exalt you, Lord. No other name be lifted high. Sing, there will be no one like There will be no one like you, no one beside you. You alone are worthy of all praise. And there will be no one like you, and no you, you alone are worthy of all. Let's sing it one last time. There will be no one. And there will be no one like you. And no one beside you, you alone are worthy of all. So I will exalt. So I will exalt you, Lord. I will exalt you, Lord. There is no like you, my God. I will exalt you, Lord. I will exalt 
exalt you this morning for the love that you've poured out on us, for calling us by our names, for knowing us intimately, Lord, the only way that you could know us. Thank you, Jesus, for praying, paying the price that we could know you, that we could come to you in any season of life. And you come and meet us in every place that we're at, Lord, just as we are. So, Lord, this morning, just as we are, no pretending, no performing, Lord. We come to you in the communion table. And we thank you for your blood poured out for us, your body broken. Let us never forget the price that you paid for us. That we would know you intimately and be known by you. We thank you, Jesus. So if you want to make your way up to the communion table, we'll sing a couple more choruses and then we will release you for the day. So bless you guys. Enjoy communion. So I